This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, let's start with the very recent developments from the region. Yesterday, President Erdogan visited illegally occupied Cyprus and announced a plan to develop the seaside town of Varosha. Over the years, I've met with Greek Cypriots who had to evacuate Varosha in 1974, fleeing the invading Turkish army for safety. Many of them ended up immigrating to the United States. Forty-seven years following the invasion, their stories remain harrowing, a daily reminder of those terrible days in 1974. For years, many in the international community, including President Biden himself, have supported a peace process which would establish a bizonal, bicommunal federation on the island. Erdogan's visit cast these efforts aside, as well as long-standing UN resolutions on Verosha. His goal is to advance a separate state on the island of Cyprus. Simply put, this violation of international law is unacceptable, and I expect to hear from the Undersecretary today a plan on how the Biden administration will respond. I led a letter with several members on this committee to the President last week. Erdogan's actions are not simply about Cyprus, but mark a crucial test for the U.N. system and the U.S. response. We need to see a strong statement from the U.N. Security Council today condemning this move. Unfortunately, this pattern of Turkish aggression across the region has become the norm. Last summer, Erdogan provided military support to Azerbaijani strikes against ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. He also facilitated the passage of militants from Syria to fight on the side of Azerbaijan. Yet these actions elicited no penalty from the Trump administration, no concrete reaction from the international community, no sanction. This is unacceptable. And I expect more from this administration than I did the last, and I look forward to understanding how the department views Turkey's role in last year's war and what measures can be taken in response. I appreciate the excellent work done by the Biden administration in reestablishing our rock-solid bond with NATO. It is the most powerful alliance in the history of the world and an absolutely essential pillar of U.S. national security. So when Turkey, as a NATO member, introduces a Russian S-400 air defense system into its territory, it poses a significant threat to NATO. It poses a significant threat to U.S. pilots. It poses a significant threat to our partners. Under no circumstances will I support the lifting of CATSA sanctions if the S-400 remains in Turkey. Nor would I support Turkey rejoining the F-35 program. I'm proud of the role played by Congress to advance these sanctions and ensure their implementation. The message should be clear. Any effort to weaken NATO from within or outside will be met by a robust response by the United States. In Syria, the United States and Turkey remain at cross-purposes through multiple military interventions, some of which were directly green-lighted by the previous administration. Turkey has created several zones of control in northern Syria, that encompass 4,000 square miles, roughly the size of Lebanon, and contain 4 million people equivalent to the population of Croatia. While these areas provide safe haven for millions of Syrians displaced from government-controlled areas, they have done so at a horrific cost to the local Kurdish population, 
who have endured forced displacement and kidnappings, unlawful detention and torture, illegal property seizures, and numerous other human rights violations at the hands of Turkish-backed opposition forces. Beyond the considerable human rights concerns, these actions directly undermine the United States' counterterrorism partnership with the Syrian Democratic Forces and our shared fight against the Islamic State. This is also unacceptable. President Erdogan has publicly asked President Biden for greater cooperation with Turkey and Syria. It's paramount that the administration provide the committee with greater clarity concerning how it is addressing Turkey's role in the numerous human rights violations committed in northern Syria and the conditions it will apply to any enhanced cooperation with Ankara in this regard. In Libya, despite the successful creation of a unity government after years of conflict, Turkey continues to maintain thousands of Syrian mercenaries, the presence of which, along with Russian-backed foreign fighters, threatens both the country's upcoming elections as well as its fragile peace. Turkey has capitalized uh, with the vulnerability uh, of Libya's previous government to extract a maritime border agreement that is in direct conflict with U.S. interests in the eastern Mediterranean and violates Greece and Cyprus's internationally recognized maritime boundaries and rights. These are not the actions of a constructive partner, let alone a NATO ally. Erdogan sees his country as on par with the great powers of the world. It's not. President Erdogan has tragically shredded its democratic institutions, imprisoned journalists. He has targeted his political opposition for arrests and sought to silence university professors. To say that more lawyers and journalists are arrested and in jail in Turkey than in any other place of the world is saying something considering some of those other places in the world. These are the actions of a weak government, not a world power, and we should treat it as such. This treatment extends to United States Embassy and consulate staff in the country. To this day, several individuals remain in prison on trumped-up charges. It's disgraceful. The Undersecretary, I'm sure, will agree that the U.S. Embassy staff should never be treated this way, anywhere, especially by a so-called ally. So I look forward to hearing an update on their status and our efforts to secure their freedom. We all hope for a day when Turkey embodies a high standard of democratic values and respect for human rights expected from a NATO member. The region and the world needs a stable and democratic Turkey. Under Erdogan, such a future is but a dim hope. I look forward to the Undersecretary's views on these and other issues, and we appreciate your appearance before the committee with that. Let me recognize the distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch, for his opening remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, one of the uh, clear takeaways from this hearing is going to be that uh, there is bipartisan agreement uh, on the many issues that uh, we have with Turkey. Turkey is a center of a complex and important geopolitical crossroads. It's where Europe, Asia, and the Middle East meet, and its borders, uh, and it borders the increasingly important Mediterranean and Black Seas. First and foremost in this hearing, we must discuss the direct bilateral relationship between the United States and Turkey, which, of course, the chairman has already done, I'm, I'm going to add to. And at a deeper level, the role our relationship plays in the eastern Mediterranean, Mediterranean and across the region. Uh, Turkey is deeply interconnected, and, of course, we must deal with them. Before delving into the problems, uh, I have to say how painful this is. 
Turkey has been a longtime ally of the United States and of our, our European uh, partners. Uh, obviously, they are a NATO ally, even though they are not acting like an ally, a NATO ally at this time. Nonetheless, they are in the, uh, in the NATO alliance. And it is very painful to see the country deteriorate as it has deteriorate, deteriorated and left the commitments that uh, we, all of, our, all of the NATO partners, have had. Uh, to the values and uh, things that uh, we value in NATO. Uh, the most pressing aspect of our relationship is Turkey's acquisition and continued use of the Russian S-400 missile system. This issue remains at an impasse and has now grown to define uh, the most significant part of our relationship, and it is deeply troubling. It's unacceptable that Turkey believes it can reap the benefits of NATO membership while refusing to commit to the basic principle of a cohesive, uh, interoperable alliance. They seem to have forgotten that NATO was formed specifically to push back against Russian aggression. Uh, dealing with them on uh, military purchases like this is just simply unacceptable. This is an issue I raised with the Turkish leaders at every opportunity. Indeed, I had a very clear discussion with President Erdogan in person, face-to-face, -face, where I laid out the precise nature uh, of the problems created and caused by the presence of Russian-made S-400s uh, on the soil of a NATO ally. He understood, but persisted. This issue will not go away, and it greatly affects uh, the, uh, our overall relationship on several fronts uh, when it comes to NATO matters, including the F-35s. Speaking uh, of the F-35s, after our conversation, he understood clearly that even though they've paid for five of them, the five have been completed and are sitting here in the United States, those F-35s will not be delivered to Turkey so long as there are S-400 missiles uh, on Turkish soil. The same with the uh, construction of uh, parts for the F-900, or excuse me, the F-35. The, there were 900 parts for the F-35 being uh, produced in Turkey, that is down to a very minimal amount right now and uh, will eventually be completely phased out. Ending on a positive note, uh, first of all, the, uh, the Erdogan has appointed a new ambassador to, uh, to the United States. Uh, this ambassador is very engaging and uh, says, and I believe that he wants to do his best to attempt to repair what is uh, obviously a deteriorating relationship. Uh, I hope he's successful in that regard. Turkey's recent agreement to withdraw its mercenaries from Libya also shows it has the capacity for, re for responsible stabilization through diplomacy, but it remains to be seen whether they follow through on this commitment, and it's important that we ensure that they do. Likewise, Turkey deserves international recognition for hosting millions of Syrian refugees for the past several years. We must take a clear-eyed look at our relationship with Turkey, we can appreciate and encourage the good while clearly condemning the bad. I expect our discussions today will help us define these matters and develop a better understanding of how to address them in this emerging era. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. We'll now turn to the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland. We welcome you back to the committee. We look forward to hearing the administration's views on our policy vis-a-vis -vis Turkey moving forward. I'd ask that you summarize your remarks in about five minutes or so to allow time for a dialogue with you. <clears throat> Without objection, your full statement will be included in the record, and 
Uh, you are now recognized. Madam Secretary. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of this committee for the invitation to come before you to discuss U.S.-Turkey relations today. As the committee knows well, and as you've both stated, the United States has a multifaceted and complex relationship with Turkey, a NATO ally for over 68 years. There are areas where we are firmly aligned in policy and outlook and working well together. There are areas where we don't see eye to eye and are working to close those gaps. And there are areas where we have profound disagreements with the Turkish government, including with regard to Cyprus yesterday. In these last two categories, President Biden and all of us who work for him are frank with our Turkish counterparts when we disagree as our Turkish officials with us. To start with the areas of strong cooperation, Turkey makes con uh, crucial contributions to NATO missions around the world. And our partnership with Turkey, which has the second largest standing military in NATO, enables us to project power in the region and defend NATO's eastern and southern flanks. We also have an important economic relationship with Turkey, one that generates upwards of $20 billion in annual bilateral trade, including an increasing energy and LNG relationship. Washington and Ankara share priorities in countering terrorism, deterring Russian and Iranian malign influence in the Middle East. And Turkey is a staunch supporter of Ukraine and Georgia's territorial integrity and vocally supports their accession to NATO. In Libya, Turkey joins the United States and others in supporting the Libyan-led UN-facilitated political process, including the prospect of elections on December 24th of this year. And we are now discussing how to reduce the presence of foreign fighters and mercenaries before the election. In Syria, as both of you have mentioned, Turkey's presence in the Northwest protects some four million Syrians from indiscriminate targeting by the Assad regime. New attacks there would be both a humanitarian catastrophe and likely launch a new wave of refugees into Turkey and Europe. We're also grateful for Turkey's ongoing efforts to support four million refugees inside Turkey, making Turkey the largest refugee hosting country in the world. And most recently, Turkey has expressed interest in maintaining a robust force at Kabul's airport as the U.S. and NATO military missions in Afghanistan come to an end. This contribution, as you all know, is vital to ensuring that we and our allies and partners can maintain a strong diplomatic presence in Kabul after our troops withdraw. So even as we work closely on these issues, President Biden has been clear with President Erdogan when we disagree, as have all of us. We continue to object to Turkey's purchase and deployment of the Russian S-400 air defense system and have made clear that any new major arms purchases from Russia will trigger additional CATSA sanctions. As you both said, the sale and co-production of the F-35 will remain suspended. We also press Turkey to avoid entanglements in regional conflicts that threaten long-term stability. The role played by third parties, including Turkey, in last year's fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh exacerbated regional tensions, and we have pressed Turkey to press Baku to release all detainees immediately to support a ceasefire and to help the sides work towards a sustainable long-term political solution. We also urge Turkey's leaders to address disagreements in the region through diplomacy rather than through provocative action or rhetoric. We condemn yesterday's announcement by Turkish Cypriot leader Tatar and Turkish President Erdogan, which would allow Turkish Cypriots to take control of parts of Varosha. 
This move is inconsistent with UN Security Council Resolutions 550 and 7089, which explicitly call for Varosha to be administered by the United Nations. The United States views this action as provocative, unacceptable, and detrimental to the prospects for the resumption of settlement talks. We're urging a reversal of this decision, including in a phone call that I made to Ankara this morning, and we are working with like-minded partners in the UN Security Council. A Cypriot-led comprehensive settlement to reunify the island as a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation is the only path to lasting peace and stability. President Biden has also made clear that supporting democracy, human rights, and the rule of law is central to his administration, and protecting those freedoms is critical for Turkey to be a stable and democratic and reliable ally and partner. We have been clear at all levels with the Turkish government and in the department's annual human rights report about our specific concerns, and we will continue to engage the Turkish government on individual human rights cases, media freedom, freedom of expression, assembly, and association, judicial independence, and fair trial guarantees. In this regard, as you said, Mr. Chairman, a top concern remains the release of local employees of U.S. Mission Turkey who have been unjustly detained. Overall, we are working to try to resolve these concerns and advance our agenda through robust and regular engagement at all levels with Turkish counterparts and with candor and clarity in those discussions. Uh, I'd like to make one final point, if I may, before taking your questions. I know that this committee is exploring how to expedite consideration of more than 20 State Department senior political appointees and ambassadors in the weeks before the August recess, and you've recently noticed some additional hearings. We are very grateful for this effort, and I just want to underscore that the strength of American diplomacy and the department's role in the policy process will be greatly enhanced by moving these nominees expeditiously to full Senate confirmation before the recess. Thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you. We'll start a round of five minutes of questions. And I will just say on your last point, I totally embrace that. We are uh, marching forward rather aggressively. We had a panel of four, three undersecretaries uh, yesterday uh, and have more. Senator Rish and I have just agreed on some for next week. Uh, I think the, the administration's challenge is on the Senate floor, not before this committee. Uh, and uh, uh, I know that uh, Senator Cruz uh, has taken the view that he is going to hold up nominees uh, over the Nord Stream pipeline issue. And uh, I respect both his prerogatives as well as uh, the question of Nord Stream. I just think it's detrimental to the United States not to have uh, its people on the ground in order to make the case uh, and promote U.S. interests. And we hope we can come to a resolution in that regard. So let me start. Uh, do I have your commitment that CATSA sanctions will remain in place on Turkey if it continues to possess the Russian S-400 air defense system? You do, Mr. Chairman, and not only my commitment, but the President's. Does the administration maintain a commitment to full implementation of Section 231 of CATSA, not only in Turkey, but for that fact uh, around the world? We do. Um, can I get your commitment to brief me if there's any effort within the interagency to weaken or in any way diminish the use of CATSA 231 in Turkey or anywhere else? Yes, sir. Thank you. Now, as mentioned, Turkey now insists on a two-state solution in Cyprus, while our government has rejected the notion at the highest level 
I've seen some lower-level officials at the State Department have been quoted talking about Turkish Cypriot, quote, sovereignty. Can you affirm that the United States rejects the notion of two states? Absolutely. As I said in my statement, uh, we think only a Cypriot-led process, by zonal, by communal, uh, will bring peace and stability in Cyprus. And are we working to ensure that there be a UN resolution on Verosha? We are, and we had consultations yesterday in the UN, and those will continue until we have a product. Is Turkey establishing a drone base in occupied Cyprus? Uh, sir, I am personally not aware of that, but I will take it for, for, uh, for, to look at. Uh, I'd, I'd like you to. My, my, my information is that they are. And then the question of if they are, then what are the implications of such a move for the Republic of Cyprus, which is part of the European Union, but others in the region, like Israel and Egypt, for example? would obviously uh, be destabilizing, so let me take that for review. Uh, we're agreed. Over the past year, Turkey has violated Greek airspace and acted aggressively in the Cypriot exclusive economic zone. This has been happening in two EU member states. Last year, Brussels considered sanctions in response to this behavior, but ultimately decided against strong measures. Are you familiar with what role the United States played in the European sanctions debate? Uh, I am not familiar with how we would have played inside the EU conversation. I am familiar with the fact that we encouraged both Greek and Tur uh, Greece and Turkey to have bilateral talks. We also encouraged the Secretary General of NATO to become involved in trying to mediate this dispute, as has been the case um, over, over many decades, and that the situation has calmed somewhat. Are you, are you familiar of the U.S. sought to dissuade the EU from imposing sanctions? I'm not familiar with that. That does not sound right to me. So let me just say, uh, and I, I just heard your response uh, to the question before. I appreciate, you know, we call on, in many cases, both countries to act uh, appropriately. But the problem with that is uh, when both countries are doing something wrong, I get it. But when only one country is doing something wrong, it's a little disingenuous. As far as I know, Greece is not uh, overflying, uh, incurring uh, Turkish airspace. The Turks are doing that to Greece. They do it in the territorial waters of Greece. They uh, seek to drill uh, in the territorial waters of the Republic of Cyprus. So we, we can't be calling on both sides to, to ultimately, you know, uh, try to negotiate in good faith when one is the aggressor. And I think we make a huge mistake when we don't acknowledge who's the aggressor in a, in a certain uh, set of actions. Um, let me ask you, do, do you, are you familiar with Turkey facilitating the transfer of fighters from Syria to Azerbaijan during the 2020 war in Nagorno-Karabakh? Um, I think it would be appropriate on that last point to discuss it in a separate session, if that's uh, acceptable to you, Mr. Chairman, in another setting. All right. Well, as part of that, I will be looking forward to hearing from the department whether you investigated any of the Turkish drones used by Azerbaijan in the war last summer that included U.S.-produced component parts, which I find totally unacceptable. Do you support full, do you meaning the department, of course, uh, support full implementation of the Eastern Mediterranean Security and Energy Partnership Act, the law that uh, I helped write with Senator Rubio and members of this committee, 
for the establishment of a regional energy center to help deepen energy cooperation in the region and to deal both on security and renewable technologies? Uh, we do, and we have been engaged with the individual parties to try to encourage uh, more coordination in, those, in that regard. It is one of the success stories of recent period. And finally, uh, finally, because I want to go to other colleagues, the Council of Europe Judicial Arm and the European Court of Human Rights ordered Turkey to immediately release civil society leader Osman Kavala and Kurdish politicians Selahattin Demirtas from prison. What's the administration doing to advocate for both of the individuals' release? Uh, we have advocated directly for their re release as well as other political prisoners and uh, as well as uh, appropriate treatment of, of media and other uh, unjustly prosecuted individuals in Turkey, and we will continue to do so, and we do that uh, at every level. Senator Rush. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, how, how does state assess Turkey's uh, continued uh, commitment to the S-400? I think a lot of us have been incredibly clear with them of the consequences, and I, my, my sense is they didn't really think we would follow through on things like CATSA. Um, they, uh, my sense also is that uh, they have come to the realization that uh, we're serious about this and that it's not going to go away. You share that assessment, and uh, what other thoughts might you have in that regard? Uh, as I said, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, when I came up for my confirmation hearing, it's incomprehensible to me personally and to most of us why a NATO ally would want to acquire a, a Russian system and put at risk uh, all of the things that have been put at risk, including co-production of the F-35, which was not only of security benefit, but it was of, also of economic benefit to Turkey. So, you know, I, I think that you uh, may have your finger on it, that they walked into this or were romanced into this by the seller uh, without um, expecting that the costs would be as high as they have been. Um, and it is uncomfortable for them that, is, that they are as high as they have been. We continue to offer them various ways and off-ramps out of this, including in our most recent highest level uh, encounter, and we will continue to, to have that conversation. But as we said, um, there are many things we cannot do together that we'd like to do together while this goes forward. Well, as you and I have discussed a number of times, it's, it, it is... Uh mind-boggling that they have gone down the road they've gone down, and particularly when they have been offered the clear off-ramps that they have been offered, which obviously we can't talk about publicly completely, but uh, uh, th th this is uh, really disconcerting. And uh, the, the good news is, is I think that uh, uh, one of the things I think might have pushed it over the edge is the fact that I don't think that they thought we'd take away those 900 parts uh, that they were producing for the F-35 have done so, and I think that is a, a very significant economic uh, matter for them, and it's totally in their hands uh, that, that that happened. Uh, turning for a minute to the agreement that we, we all know about the, the mess that's going on in Libya, and uh, uh, Turkey and Russia have both played a part in making it messier, and uh, they now uh, have announced that they've reached this tentative agreement to uh, withdraw the foreign troops and mercenaries from Libya. What, what's uh, state's assessment, uh, your assessment, as to whether or not that will actually uh, come to fruition? Uh, these agreements are easy to make, uh, hard to execute. What are your thoughts? 
Uh, you're, you're not wrong about that, Senator Risch. Uh, both Turkey at the highest level and Russia at the highest level have said that they are willing to support the withdrawal of mercenary forces, but they want to do it in tandem with each other. Uh, we are working with the current UN envoy, Mr. Kubish, on how that might work, a synchronized withdrawal, and we are hopeful for progress on that well before the election at the end of the year. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to yield back since we've got a vote going on and others want to ask a question. Uh, Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, for holding this important hearing. And I want to thank you, Under Secretary Newland, not only for your service now and your presence and testimony here, but for your long service to our nation. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Under Secretary, you cited the very complex relationship uh, that exists with. Uh, Turkey. I think both the chairman and the ranking member have also done a great job of highlighting some of the issues that are associated with our critical strategic relationship with this nation. We have an alliance that uh, has existed for many, many years between Turkey and the United States. And Turkey plays a critical role in NATO, one that we need to continue to preserve and support. But there are serious problems, as have been noted, uh, between uh, in, 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 in many dimensions uh, in terms of, of Turkey's current behavior. If you think about the arrest of U.S. government local employees in Turkey, uh, the S-400 program that both the ranking member and the chairman have been so articulate about, um, Turkey's purchase of Russian assets like that are very disturbing, as you know, to, to all of us. Um, their crackdown on journalists and, and, and the friction that exist when their forces collide uh, with, that, with our activity in Syria to fight against ISIS. Um, it's a complex relationship, as you say. And I share the ranking member's optimism that our new ambassador from Turkey uh, will, will, will take a new approach. I had the privilege of serving uh, in Japan with him when he was ambassador to uh, Japan, when I served as U.S. ambassador to Japan. So I share the optimism that uh, ranking member Rish noted with our new Turkish ambassador to the United States. I hope you'll have a good working relationship with him as well. But I, I'd be very curious, and this is a process question really, uh, curious as to your approach in terms of having a structured strategic dialogue with Turkey, trying to preserve the good and important strategic aspects of what needs to happen there, uh, while pressing hard against Ankara on those issues where we will certainly differ and need, need to be strong against. I, I'd appreciate just your talk, for your, your perspective a bit, uh, Under Secretary, and how you'll approach that. Uh, thanks, Senator Haggerty. Well, I think we approach this very much uh, as uh, President Biden approaches all of our strategic relationships, which is to engage, engage, engage at every level, and to, be, to work together on as many things as we can, but to be absolutely frank when we disagree. And I think you saw that when he and President Erdogan met on the margins of the NATO summit uh, about a month ago. Prior to that, we had had Deputy Secretary Sherman in Ankara, one of her first overseas trips to engage at all levels. I've, I am now speaking probably every two weeks with my Turkish counterpart 
We have uh, the excellent David Satterfield as our ambassador on the ground, and the honorable Senator Flake in the, in the, in the shoot to succeed him, uh, Senate willing, uh, in the future. So we, uh, our process here is to talk about every single issue with as much frequency and as much candor as we can and try to close the gaps. And when we can't be close the gaps, to be clear that we will call it as we see it. As we did yesterday on Verosha, I think you saw the pretty tough statement. I, I appreciate that approach and that perspective, and to the extent that um, this committee can be helpful to you in any aspect of that, uh, know that uh, certainly I stand ready to be supportive. I'd like to pick up on something that Chairman Menendez also mentioned too, and that is the role, again, a process question, but the role that you feel we could play in helping address disputes like that that exist between Turkey and Greece, if you think about their entire posture in the Eastern Mediterranean, what role do you think the United States can play in a constructive manner to help address that with our allies? Well, the good news, Senator, is that Greece and Turkey have been back in talks, particularly on the maritime situation, since January, and they're meeting with pretty regular frequency, so we have encouraged those and we support them from um, our platforms in, in both Athens and, and Ankara. We also have encouraged uh, the Secretary General of NATO, as I said earlier, uh, to be active uh, with both Greece and Turkey to provide them a safe space to work through their issues, and particularly as the chairman uh, said, when there are incursions into airspace that are, that are unacceptable. Uh, one thing I cut out of my statement for length, uh, but it's in the longer statement, uh, we do encourage, as you all get back into the travel business, uh, to consider stops in Ankara and Athens, ideally in a bipartisan way, to, to, to talk frankly about uh, both what's going well and the issues where we have to, have to do better. Thank you for your leadership, Undersecretary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, in Senator Menendez's absence, I'll recognize myself as next in line for questioning. Um, good to see you. Um, Madam Secretary, thank you for joining us uh, today. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper uh, into the dangerous slide away from democracy in Turkey in June. Turkey's constitutional court uh, ordered that the country's main pro-Kurdish uh, party, uh, the HDP, go on trial over alleged links to Kurdish fighters. Now, the Kurds are Turkey's largest, largest ethnic minority, and the HDP um, has grown sort of so successful and so popular that it briefly helped end Erdogan's ruling uh, AKP parliamentary majority for the first time in over uh, a decade. Um, the State Department uh, has said that these attempts to essentially eradicate the HDP from Turkey's political infrastructure would, quote, further undermine, unquote, democracy. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about uh, whether the State Department has directly engaged with the Turkish government on this issue and you know, what steps that can we take, both the executive and legislative branch, to try to make sure that the upcoming elections in 2023 are, are fair and that uh, there is a, a robust multi-party system that isn't undermined to the, the point of futility between now and those elections. Thank you, Senator Murphy. We share your concerns about the treatment of the HDP. I know that there are members of this committee who have uh, relationships with some of those members. 
Uh, obviously, it is important, and it goes to the conversation we had with Senator Haggerty about the value that we see in uh, members of this committee and uh, other leaders in the in the Congress making regular trips to Ankara and showing support for political leaders across the spectrum, particularly those who are under particular pressure. Uh, this issue is very much part of our larger concern about the human rights situation in Turkey, which we are very frank about from the highest level uh, onward, that respect for human rights, fundamental freedoms, upholding fair trial guarantees, judicial independence, uh, freedom of association, freedom of political practice uh, are cent central to any thriving democracy, and our view is very much the same as yours, that Turkey weakens itself uh, when it doesn't uphold these fundamental freedoms, and particularly in the area of political pluralism. And, and let me maybe ask this specific question. What, what would be the impact of banning the largest Kurdish political party? Um, what would be the impact on the upcoming uh, elections? Um, and is there any justification in our mind for such a sweeping measure uh, as necessary to continue what is a legitimate interest that the Turkish government has uh, on cracking down on Kurdish-affiliated terrorism that still does pose a legitimate threat to the security of the country? When legitimate terrorism cases can be made in a free and transparent manner with access to uh, independent judicial process and all of that, Obviously, it is in our interest and Turkey's interest to take action, but that is uh, a far different matter than using a terrorism excuse to um, eradicate political pluralism or, or ban a, an individual party. As you know, there's a significant uh, Kurdish population in Turkey which uh, supports the HDP and which risks, risks being disenfranchised uh, were such a party to be banned. Um, as you know, the majority party has also made quite an effort to, um, how should we say, recruit HDP members into, into their fold, um, you know, to the extent that, that party changes um, occur, uh, that needs to be effectuated with free will and without any coercion also. Um, finally, and, and, and I'm not asking for an extensive answer on this question given limited time, but I'm interested to know whether the department is pursuing uh, Interpol reforms. Um, after the 2016 coup attempt, the Turkish government issued approximately 30,000 uh, red notices on the Interpol system. And uh, of course, some of the actions that Turkey has taken are consistent with the ways in which other nations have begun to compromise the Interpol system. You also have obviously increasing news of extradition attempts and attempts to target dissidents over, uh, abroad. Um, are we concerned at all about the overuse of the red notice system, and uh, is this something that we're looking into with respect to a future reform agenda? Um, I'm going to take the question on what we're doing on Interpol reform per se, but I will say that you are not wrong that when the Interpol system is flooded with cases that don't meet the standard, it sucks up time and energy and money that should be appropriate appropriately be applied to cases that, that do meet the standard. So it is an issue of, of concern. Thank you very much. Senator Romney. Thank you, Chairman Murphy. Uh, thank you, Undersecretary Newland. It's good to see you and appreciate your 
expertise uh, and uh, and perspectives with regards to our strategy in Turkey. I just wanted to follow up on a line of questioning that uh, Senator Risch began with regards to the uh, production of some 900 parts for the F-35. Has that production ended or is it in the process of ending? And and, uh, do we have any sense of what the economic impact will be uh, in Turkey of that, uh, uh, that production ending? Uh, thanks, Senator Romney. Yes, we're, we are in the phase-out part, as you know, after we ended the F-35 engagement. There were supply chain reasons to phase out the spare parts, including the need to ramp up production elsewhere so that we didn't um, uh, hurt the line globally. Uh, my understanding is that it, I, I'm going I'm to ask you to go to DOD on the precise phase-down, but I think we are within the with the year, if not sooner, of, of being finished there. And, uh, you know, overall, uh, Turkey took a significant hit, not just in terms of security, but as I said, in terms of uh, its economy from the, from the suspension of the program, uh, both jobs and, um, you know, the potential to, to export and be part of the export chain in the future. So, um, and particularly at a time when the Turkish economy is hurting in other areas, uh, it, it, it was um, it was uh, an interesting decision by the government. Let's put it that way. Uh, there was some speculation earlier about whether this was uh, something that the uh, uh, the Erdogan had actually considered uh, and, and may have misjudged what America's response might be. But is there also the possibility that that this was calculated by uh, Mr. Erdogan? Uh, in a desire to draw closer to Russia. Uh, can, can you characterize the relationship that you're seeing building between Erdogan and Putin? Is it close? Is it collaborative? Uh, uh, is he hoping to play uh, uh, the, the EU and the U.S. off against uh, Russia, or, or is he actually uh, moving pretty strong uh, in that direction? Well, let me start by saying that our interest here is clear, which is in cementing Turkey as much as we can and the Turkish people uh, with us in the transatlantic and NATO family and discouraging uh, deepening cooperation or dependence in particular on on Russia, whether it's in the field of security, whether it's in the field of of energy or or anything else for that matter. Um, Without overanalyzing in this open hearing, I would simply say that um, what I see as a longtime watcher of Russia is that in the past administration, there was quite a deepening of the Turkish-Russian relationship. It began in Syria and then expanded to, uh, to other areas. I think there may, uh, and I won't speak for the Turks, but I do sense some buyer's remorse, let's put it that way, um, in Ankara with regard to um, that relationship. It hasn't necessarily paid out in Ankara's interest and has caused some of the problems that we've talked about already this morning um, and, you know, uh, sort of culminated in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict that we saw last summer, which was not only tragic for people there, but also further further frayed the engagement and Turkey and Russia being on opposite sides in Libya, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, I think we have an opportunity here if we continue engaging with our Turkish allies um, to bring them back closer to us, but there's a lot of work to do. Let me ask you to speculate a bit on your perspective uh, as, as to what uh, uh, 
Erdogan may have been thinking and his purposes uh, behind uh, supporting uh, the safety of the Kabul airport as we uh, withdraw uh, from the region or from the country, uh, and as we hope to bring interpreters and others uh, from Afghanistan into the U.S., uh, it, it, he he has allowed his military or has directed his military to play a role in securing that airport. Any sense as to why he's doing that? Uh, Senator Romney, I would just repeat what I said in the in the opening, which is this decision by Turkey um, is extremely welcome and absolutely vital to all of us who want to continue to maintain robust diplomatic presence um, in Afghanistan to support the Afghanistan uh, the people of Afghanistan as we withdraw our military forces. So we very much appreciate Turkey taking on that role. As you know, Turkey has historically played a strong role during the um, the NATO mission uh, at the airport, so they are uh, constructive partners there. They know what the what the mission is, and they're experienced at it. Um, they also have uh, a unique and special relationship, both with the Afghan people, but with other um, actors in the region, which makes them um, uh, a partner who is more likely to be welcomed there over the longer term, if that makes sense. Uh, with regard to um, President Erdogan's decision-making, I, I never like to get in the head of another leader, but my sense from uh, joining the president's meeting with President Erdogan was that he appreciated how vital it was to have a strong NATO military do that mission if we want to stay engaged diplomatically uh, with Afghanistan and was willing to take it on. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Newland, uh, thank you very much for your service. Um, I listened very carefully to you defining the different buckets of interest between the United States and Turkey, those that we can agree, those we're making progress, and those where we disagree. And you have a very strong reputation of being very direct and clear in your bilateral conversations. So I am certain that um, you're very clear with the Turks in regards to the areas that we disagree. Having said that, President Biden rightly said that our foreign policy is going to be embedded in our values. So my question to you is, how do you deal with Turkey uh, today and still hold true to American values that the president is talking about when under the Erdogan regime we see reporters randomly imprisoned, citizens taken off the streets and imprisoned, the human rights record is, is horrible, uh, and then to mention on top of that, as we've already talked about, the Cyprus issue and the S-400s, et cetera, which looks more like a country like Russia than rather than Turkey. So how do you um, reconcile how you deal with Turkey and live up to President Biden's commitment that our foreign policy engagements are always going to be embedded with our values? Well, Senator Cardin, as the member of this committee who knows our president probably best of, best of all, uh, we do it the Biden way. Uh, he uh, speaks truth to his interlocutors about human rights concerns. I've seen him do it with, uh, with leaders all around the world, whether they're NATO allies or whether they are uh, President Putin, when he has concerns. And as he, has, as he said not too long ago, uh, it is a matter of his DNA, but it's also a matter of our national DNA. 
And uh, he ha we have been very clear with Turkey that we think this weakens their democracy. And it's also important, as you know, um, to stand with those Turks who are facing incarceration, repression, uh, unfair uh, judicial targeting, uh, press pressure, etc., as we do with those who face human rights abuses around the world. So speaking out privately is important, but speaking out publicly is important as well. And uh, he leads all of us in that direction, and, and uh, I, uh, I don't think that's going to change as long as he's president. So you, you've talked about the potential of buyer remorse in regards to some of the decisions made by Turkey. Uh, so my question to you, in order to be effective, we have to work with our partners in a multilateral manner. Uh, considering Turkey's actions, particularly with the S-400, which is against NATO protocols, and its other activities, what success are you having with our traditional partners in working with us to put maximum disappointment and pressure on Turkey for its decisions? Well, first of all, with regard to the human rights issues that we just talked about, I think we share these concerns with other partners in NATO and with the European Union, and they make their views clear. The European Union, I think you know, is back in dialogue with Turkey on the prospect for a better economic relationship, but these issues are front and center with Turkey. Um, every time the NATO Secretary General and, and other NATO partners go to Ankara, the issue of the S-400 uh, comes up, as well as our disappointment, those of us who are F-35 nations, that Turkey is not part of this extremely important uh, program, both in security and economic terms. So uh, we continue to make those points, and, and um, we, we have had, as, a, as I've discussed here, to, um, to impose costs on on Ankara for these decisions that they that they have made, but we try to do it as a community of nations um, and not standing alone. You know, impose a cost, but it'd be more effective if that cost was uh, supported by at least our NATO allies, but our other allies as well. Uh, and have we been successful in getting them to take action? I hear their language, but to take action? You know, I think, um, as I mentioned, the EU-Turkey dialogue uh, has been ongoing for decades, and because of some of the internal issues in Turkey, has not progressed in the direction that either the EU or President Erdogan hoped. They are back in discussion again, but I think the rigorous EU standards come to bear here, and particularly with regard to the decision made on Verosha yesterday, um, it's important, you know, that. The, the EU has made its voice clear on that as well. At yesterday, there was a statement by Mr. Burrell, and we have said to Turkey that we worry that with moves like this, they put at risk the bigger game, which is the potential for uh, a, a, a customs union or something else with, with the EU. So I do think that the, the allies and partners play an important role here, but obviously, um, the United States has this long and deep and rich relationship, including our economic relationship, which is, um, you know, perhaps the biggest card. I think there's room for improvement with our support from our you. allies. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Madam Secretary, nice to see you again. I want to talk about Nord Stream 2. It's something we've yes. discussed previously. Um, there is strong bipartisan opposition to the President's deliberate failure to abide by U.S. law and sanction all of the entities involved in the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Now we see news reports that uh, the United States and Germany came to a deal on the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline, front page of the day's Wall Street Journal. Uh, the president appears to have made this deal with a government that will change leadership in just a few months in Germany. Secretary Blinken has repeatedly pledged to work with Congress, as he said, on the takeoff and not just the landing. And he's clearly failed to keep his word on this. That, that this new deal, I believe, is a grave mistake. Uh, the president is giving Russia a new geopolitical weapon. Uh, Russia uses energy as a geopolitical weapon to coerce, to manipulate. Uh, paving the way for Russia and Germany to complete this pipeline, I think, puts just a stranglehold on Europe. I got back, I was in Germany a week or so ago, talking to people, leaders in, in, in Europe um, who are opposed to what's happening through NATO. Uh, pr protecting this Russian trap is not in our national security interest. It doubles Europe's reliance on Russian energy. It funnels more money to Russia at a time with increased malign activities from Russia. It eliminates barriers for additional Russian military actions uh, in Ukrainian territory. Uh, there are also reports of the administration now attempting to silence the Ukrainians from even raising concerns about this new deal. Um, Congress is the only one really willing to impose meaningful costs on Russian malign projects and support our allies facing the Russian aggression. I think it's clear that Congress and the American people can't count on the administration to do the right thing with regard to this. So why is it that the administration, why do you believe it's acceptable to deal this way with the Ukrainians and trying to silence them over this terrible deal with the Germans? Uh, Senator Barroso, let me start by, by saying we agree with you. The Nord Stream pipeline is a bad deal, as we have said. It increases dependence on Russia. It increases dependence on hydrocarbons. Um, I worked, as you know, because you and I worked on it together in my last government gig very hard, um, particularly with the EU, to uh, make those points, to, to slow it, um, and, all of, and all of those things. With regard to the PISA sanctions, uh, we did, as you know, impose in May a significant uh, number of new sanctions, 19 new entities. We also imposed sanctions on, on the company and the, its, its officers. However, we waived them in the interest of seeing whether we could get Germany to work with us and work with the Ukrainians and Poland um, to deal with the consequences uh, and the vulnerabilities that this pipeline creates uh, for Ukraine. We have not, I want to repeat that here, we have taken zero action uh, to silence Ukraine. Ukraine is a sovereign nation and will speak out itself with regard to this. Uh, later this afternoon, uh, we will make public uh, the uh, agreement that we have with the, with the German government. I can give you a couple of the highlights here, which um, you'll uh, in a minute, but what I'd like to say is throughout this process, we have engaged in intensive consultations with the Ukrainians, um, including when Secretary Blinken was there, when uh, the president talked to President Zelensky, my own conversations on almost a twice-monthly basis with senior Ukrainian leaders 
on their requirements and on their vulnerabilities as we worked on this agreement with the Germans. Uh, my colleague, Councillor Derek Chalet, has been in Ukraine yesterday and the day before, um, including um, to solidify the uh, President Zelensky's visit to Washington later this afternoon. Um, I, as you know, as a longtime friend and supporter of Ukraine, believe that if we had not had this agreement with the pipeline 90% complete, uh, Ukraine would be at considerably more risk. But let me just give you a couple of the highlights which will become fully public later this afternoon, um, if I may. Um, it's in tiny print and I'm getting old here. But um, among other things, uh, Germany has committed in this agreement with us that should Russia attempt to use energy as a weapon or commit further aggressive acts against Ukraine, Germany will take actions at the national level and press for effective measures at the European level, including sanctions, to limit Russian export capabilities to Europe in the energy sector. That's one aspect of this agreement. The other aspect of this agreement is support for an extension of the transit agreement between Russia and Ukraine. As you know, it comes to an end in 2024. Uh, we will seek uh, and press for and use full leverage to try to seek an additional 10 years for Ukraine. But more broadly, uh, we need to work together to uh, reduce Ukrainian dependence, both its economic dependence on transit, but its own dependence on Russian gas. So I think you'll see when this is released a considerable effort by both the U.S. and Germany to help diversify energy supply and energy source for Ukraine with concrete dollar figures, euro figures attached to it. So, um, look, this is a bad situation and a bad pipeline, but we need to help protect Ukraine, and I feel that we have made some significant steps in that direction uh, with this agreement. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Mr. Chairman, I have one question on Afghanistan. My time is gone, but I've, it has to do with Afghanistan remaining one of the most dangerous countries in the world. Uh, with the Taliban's increasing aggressive military actions, Afghanistan has experienced increasing levels of violence. The deteriorating security situation in Afghanistan is going to impact mobility of our personnel and the effectiveness of U.S. civilian, the mission there. So the, the question is, you know, do, could you give it a brief update on the status of negotiations with Turkey to provide forces to protect the airport, and are we planning to downsize the diplomatic mission, close programs, reduce embassy staff, having been there a number of times and understanding the security risk of trying to protect uh, the people in the, in the personnel compound there? Senator, as I, as I said, we are very gratified that Turkey has agreed to provide a significant force to protect the airport, and without that, we would not, neither we nor our allies and partners would be able to maintain a robust presence. Um, you know, obviously some of the uh, size of the embassy had to do with our security relationship with Afghan forces. We will now do most of that from an over-horizon platform, so that allows us to make some appropriate reductions, but it is the President's intention, it is our intention um, to continue to, if not redouble, our diplomatic efforts, our assistance efforts, and particularly in the areas that Afghanistan needs most, including the protection of, of women and human rights and judicial independence, et cetera. Thank you. Th thank you, Madam Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The Senator got extra time because it's his birthday today, so. All right. Happy All right. birthday. Senator Van Hollen. 
Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Madam Secretary, for your, your leadership. Um, Chairman Menendez raised a litany of issues uh, where President Erdogan's Turkey has violated its obligations as a NATO partner, violated international law, undermined uh, our interests uh, in the region. We talked about the S-400. I was pleased to hear you underscore the fact that the CATSA sanctions will remain in place uh, so long as that continues and that they will not be able to participate in the F-35 uh, program. Uh, Turkey is regularly violating the territorial waters in the exclusive economic zone of uh, Cyprus and Greece, and there's a real risk that some incident there could spiral out of control if they continue those provocative actions. Uh, you referenced uh, Turkey's malign actions with respect uh, to Armenia. Um, it is true that Turkey is shouldering the burden of millions of refugees from Syria. It's also important that we remember that for years, Turkey downplayed the ISIS threat, allowed ISIS fighters to transit through Turkey, and they continue to attack the Syrian Kurds, which have been the tip of the spear in our fight against uh, ISIS. Uh, I want to turn now to yesterday's uh, actions in Cyprus and President Erdogan's uh, statements regarding Varosha um, and the efforts to reach a, a bizonal, uh, bicommunal federation, which, of course, he undermined entirely. On, on Varosha, um, he is, as the administration has indicated, violating UN Security Council's resolutions and international law. Here's what Erdogan said in response to people calling him out on these issues. We will listen to them, but we do not care what they say. And that has been Erdogan's attitude on a whole host of issues. And the question is, what are we going to actually do in response? Uh, and so my, my question to you is, what are we going to do in concert with our uh, NATO and EU partners? Uh, Chairman Mendendez, Senator Rubio, and I wrote to the president uh, last week anticipating uh, this uh, action taken by uh, Erdogan. Uh, and it's not going to be enough to simply make statements, um, as President Erdogan's indicated. Quote, we do not care what they say. So my question is, what are we going to actually do in partnership with our partners? Well, thank you, Senator, and happy birthday. Um, you saw, I think, as, as you referenced, the strong statement from Secretary Blinken yesterday that we, and as I also repeated in my opening statement before you came in, um, that we consider the, the move yesterday in Verosha to be inconsistent with UN Security Council Resolutions 550 and 789, provocative, unacceptable, incompatible with past commitments. Um, I spoke to my Turkish counterpart this morning. I think there will be ongoing conversation with, with the Turkish government. Before this happened, Ambassador Satterfield also spoke with, um, with key members in the palace, and Secretary Blinken talked to Foreign Minister Kristalidis of Cyprus this morning. Um, the issue here is not only does this have a chilling effect on what we hoped might be a reigniting of the UN process to try to get to a bizonal, bicommunal federation, which the last time I was in government, I worked intensively on personally, along with then Vice President Biden. Um, it also has a negative effect on the ongoing conversation that Turkey is having with the EU on what it has long wanted and what the 
we had finally gotten them back into significant talks about uh, some kind of a economic uh, community. And frankly, that is the bigger game. That is of far more value for Turkey. Um, if, so, if I may, Madam Secretary, just because of the time. I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, but I'm just reading to you President Erdogan's words. He yeah. quote, doesn't care what you say, what we say, what the EU says. And so um, I, I think uh, our experience indicates that uh, Turkey will respond only when they, there's a price to be paid. Uh, for their actions. Uh, sometimes that doesn't move them either, but uh, certainly words alone will not. If I could just also turn to the HDP issue, because as you know, this is Turkey's third largest political party. Yes. Um, they locked up uh, a number of their leaders under trumped up charges. I mean, the European uh, courts have looked at this, uh, totally trumped up uh, charges. Uh, Turkey has locked up lots of journalists. Uh, I met with Hizar Ose, who's one of the parliamentarians uh, from HDP who was visiting the United States last week. And I guess, as has been indicated, we're really pleased to see the Biden administration return to a values-based foreign policy, talking about rule of law, democracy. This obviously violates every single one of those principles, to threaten to outlaw a political party, and beyond that, outlaw the individual members from participating in future elections under any kind of uh, banner. So I'll just close really where I began, which is we really look forward to a conversation with you and, and the president about what we're going to do. Because um, I think we have the answer from Erdogan as to what his response is going to be. He doesn't care what we say. Uh, and uh, it's going to be up to us to take actions uh, to defend the rule of law, to defend democracy, and to make sure that um, you know, Turkey doesn't set an example to others uh, with respect to being uh, un unfaithful uh, NATO allies. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Newland, good to see you. Good to see you. Um, you will not be surprised by the topic of my questioning. At your confirmation hearing, you told this committee that you believed if the Nord Stream 2 pipeline between Russia and Germany were completed, that it would have disastrous effects on U.S. national security, that it would have disastrous effects on European security by making them subject to economic and energy blackmail from Russia, and that it would enrich and empower Putin to carry out that blackmail. Do you continue to believe that? I do, Senator. My understanding is that the State Department recommended that sanctions be imposed on the company that is building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and on the CEO, and that the State Department did so consistent with the sanctions that Congress passed into law that I authored. Not one set of sanctions, but two sets of sanctions that passed both houses of Congress with overwhelming bipartisan support, nearly unanimous support. Uh, my understanding is the State Department recommended that those sanctions be imposed to try to stop the pipeline and that the Biden White House overrode that recommendation. Is that accurate? Senator, I think you won't be surprised that I'm not going to discuss internal uh, administration deliberations. Uh, I don't think you were here when I 
uh, read out some of the actions that we have worked on with the German government. I can repeat that here. Um, but obviously, um, our intention here, and we did sanction the company and sanction its leadership, we chose to waive those sanctions to buy some time to see if we could work with Germany so that it could take responsibility for the pressure that this pipeline puts not only on Ukraine and on Poland and on Eastern Europe, but on um, the advantages that it gives to Russia both in security and, and uh, economic terms. We will later this afternoon release the results of those negotiations, a U.S.-German joint statement, uh, which in includes a number of elements. And since I've already read it out to your colleagues, I, I won't waste the committee's time. I can share it with you after this. But one point in particular, uh, which I think is very important for Ukraine and for our collective response, is that Germany has committed to take action that should Russia attempt to use energy as a weapon or commit further aggressive acts against Ukraine, Germany will take action at the national level and press for effective measures at the European Union level, including sanctions, to limit Russian export capabilities um, to Europe in the energy sector, including gas and other economically relevant sectors. So we can talk about how we are doing here, but our effort right now um, is to continue to protect Ukraine and others. Um, so as promises go, that promise from Angela Merkel is on its face incredibly weak. And the deal that is going to be announced today, conveniently at 9 p.m. German time, so presumably to mitigate the pushback from the Greens in Germany, uh, is in my view a complete and total capitulation by President Biden to Putin. He has given Putin everything he wants. He has surrendered on the pipeline, the pipeline that we had stopped, that we had successfully stopped until Biden surrendered. And I believe this is a generational geopolitical mistake that decades from now, future Russian dictators will be reaping billions of dollars of benefits annually from Joe Biden's mistake and will be using that pipeline to exert economic blackmail on Europe decades from now. Let me ask a straightforward question. Do our Ukrainian allies agree that this is a good deal? Senator, with, with respect and in the spirit of candor with which we have always dealt with each other, uh, I believe that we were in 2016 on our way to stopping the pipeline. As you and I discussed, uh, when the Biden administration came into office four years later, that pipeline was 90% plus complete. So Ms. Newland, I, I, I understand that, that talking point that the, the Biden State Department has been using. It was 95% complete in December of 2019 when we passed the sanctions and we stopped it. And a 95% complete pipeline is 0% complete. And we saw for a year it remained a hunk of metal at the bottom of the ocean until Joe Biden got elected and began signaling he would be soft on Russia. So let me ask my question again because my time uh, is expiring. Do our Ukrainian allies agree this is a good deal? And is it correct, as it has been widely reported, that the Biden White House has been pressuring Ukraine, demanding that they 
not criticize the deal and threatening economic support, military support, and threatening President Zelensky directly to cancel the White House meeting with the president unless they bite their tongues and not say which, what is obvious, which is that this is a disastrous deal that benefits Putin and hurts Ukraine badly. That is categorically incorrect, Senator. None of us has been pressuring Ukraine. And in fact, an invitation to President Zelensky is going to be issued publicly later today. And we have been in deep consultations with the Ukrainians on every aspect of this arrangement. I will leave it to the Ukrainians to speak for themselves on how they react to this. Do they, like all of us, wish this pipeline could be stopped and want it stopped? Of course. Does this deal give them more than they had yesterday? I believe that it does. And I have been in intense consultation with them myself, as has Derek Chalet, who's on the ground, the president, Secretary Blinken. Um, but they will speak for themselves about this, about this arrangement. I won't speak for them. They are and a sovereign state, ask of course. One final question to clarify. Is it your testimony, Ambassador, under oath to this committee, that nobody in the Biden administration has been pressuring the Ukrainians not to criticize this deal? I, I, I find that astonishing testimony. Is, the, is that what you're telling this committee? I know of nobody in the administration who has told them how to feel or how to speak about this. What we have tried to do is have consultation with them throughout on what their major concerns are. They have security concerns, but they also have energy concerns, and we have done we have worked hard to try to address the concerns that they have raised with us, including in, uh, in consultations we had before this consultation with the Germans even began. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, the, uh, I just have one or two final questions. Uh, we have a vote going on. Two years are left until Turkey's next presidential and parliamentary elections. The Turkish government's attempt to ban the country's second largest opposition party, the HDP, would represent a significant threat to the integrity of those elections. What steps are we taking to support fair and democratic elections in Turkey in 2023? Uh, thanks, Chairman. We spoke about this a little bit when Senator uh, Murphy was um, occupying your large uh, chair there. Um, we have been very concerned about, uh, very clear with the Turkish government about our concerns about the banning of political parties. I think the support that members of this committee and that Congress as a whole have provided to individual members of the HDP is, is very welcome. And obviously, you know, this party represents um, a large body of citizens of Turkey. And so, you know, banning the representatives of those voices um, raises questions about the integrity of elections. So we will continue to make those points going forward. Yeah, you know, I, I, I will, since I'm not bound by the diplomatic speak, uh, it would be an incredible uh, uh, action by Erdogan to ban the second largest party. And in doing so, those, those elections could not have validity at the end of the day. That's like if President Biden banned the Republican Party for participating. Come on. Who, who, who in this country would believe that that's a fair election? Um, in, in January, the State Department affirmed the administration's intent to continue 
counterterrorism cooperation with the Syrian Democratic Forces, which includes Syrian Kurds, the YPG, despite uh, Erdogan's continuing opposition to the group. In our bilateral discussions with Turkey on Syria, what proposals has the administration put forward to address this fundamental difference of opinion around the role of the YPG? Uh, Senator, I think primarily at this stage we've just agreed to disagree. Uh, you know, we, we think that our um, Syrian democratic forces have more than proved their value in the security situation in Syria and, and with regard to the fight against ISIS. So we agree to disagree, which means we're continuing to pursue our, our view and our engagement uh, with the um, with the um, Syrian Kurds, including the YPG. Yes. Uh, and then lastly, uh, the maritime border agreement between Turkey and the government of National Accord, the direct predecessor of Libya's current unity government, was based on a flawed understanding of international maritime law that ignores the valid claims of Turkey's Mediterranean neighbors, including Greece and the Republic of Cyprus. What's the administration's messaging uh, on this agreement? Uh, with regard to the specific maritime border with Libya, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that question because I haven't personally looked at the, the Libya situation, but as you know, uh, we have a lot of work to do together on Libya to get to an election and to get to uh, ideally a, a legitimate government that can then uh, take up its own interests in terms of maritime boundaries, et cetera. So that is something we work on with Greece, something we work on with Turkey, and we'll continue. Yeah, I, would, I would just say it's, it's rather obvious that this agreement with an entity that really is questionable to be able to in, engage uh, the government of Libya was drawn in such a way that it's in violation of every uh, international norm, law of the sea, uh, you know, the, the essence of what is recognized as uh, uh, territorial econ uh, exclusive economic zones. Uh, it's, it's just, it's provocative once again. So my problem with, uh, with the past administration, and I hope it's not going to be a problem with this administration, is that we, we continue to have the aspirations of what we wanted from Turkey. The bridge between East and West, the strong NATO ally, a more secular government um, committed on a path to democracy and a respect for human rights and the rule of law. Uh, but under Erdogan, that's just not the reality. And so I, I, I sometimes uh, get concerned that we are unwilling to call out that which is pretty obvious. That which is in the gray zone, okay, but what's pretty obvious is pretty obvious. And when we fail to recognize it as such, I think we, we do our nation a disservice. Um, and we muddle our message across the globe beyond Turkey uh, that we are willing to look the other way uh, because there's some other interest involved. So. Uh, I can assure you that the committee will be pursuing this with vigor uh, as we continue. We appreciate your testimony before the committee. Uh, this record will remain open until the close of business tomorrow. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you, Chairman.